Hey, hi, hello. Welcome to episode 52 of Trail Society, brought to you by our friends over at Free Trail. I'm Corinne Malcolm. And I'm Keely Henninger. And our dear hilly goat is away again this week. I know she raced bikes all last week. It sounds like she's got some family stuff going on this week. So hopefully she'll be joining us later this episode for an interview that we're doing with a fan favorite, Amelia Boone. Really, really excited about that. But Keely, your, uh, your left shoulder looks a little bit more normal under your puppy jacket <laughs> this week. How's, how's the old wing? Yep, it's getting there. Um, I got cleared to run on Monday. So Yay. I can do runs on like roads and flat stuff. That's not dangerous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously the only risk right now with that is being, uh, falling and re-injuring it or like, you know, the less serious risks are just running kind of awkwardly, but I'll take that. I'm not running anything far or anything where I'm going to like get a crazy overuse injury from like twerking around, but doing, you know, five, six miles. It's nice to just get outside. <laughs> yeah. It's summer. Um, you want to get outside. Yeah, exactly. And I've been hiking a lot. Cause I have, we have two dogs at the house currently. Um, we have JT's dog with us. So we've been out a lot hiking because the dog's crazy and we need all the exercise we can get for him. Uh, so it's been nice to like have some me time and go run like with my girlfriends instead of like wrangling the crazy dogs the whole time. I understand but that I get, so much. I got my MRI back and it's not, basically I got cleared because it's not as bad as we thought, which is awesome. Awesome. Um, so before when I did my shoulders, the labrum was torn like over 50% of the way around. In okay. this case, it's like pretty small comparatively. And the like Halsack's bo- like bone chip is pretty small too. So basically things are pointing towards Probably still surgery, but definitely not surgery that's needed to be done like before running again. And so my ideal scenario is just to push surgery till kind of like December rainy season when, you know, I don't need to use my arm slash I'm not running at all. So I can hopefully get another race in this year, which would be so fun. That's awesome news. That's I know with like with the degree that your shoulder was dislocated, like with that kind of weird posterior dislocation, like Mm -hmm. when I told Steven about it, he was like, Corinne. I only see that in car accidents where like this, where like the force of the steering wheel pushes someone's shoulder kind of back out of the socket. So, well, I think like looking back, cause I don't remember the whole thing. I'm pretty sure I was kind of waving like, woo. And I think my arm was up even higher than normal. And then like, it must've just landed first. Like I have a brief recollection. I could have made this up in my mind. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) But it was also on a decline. And so like the force, we were running not super slow because it wasn't technical or anything. Uh, the force must have been high. But yeah, I mean, everyone was shocked. All the doctors from Western states thought it was anterior. They were telling me like in the emails, like, no, no, posterior is too rare. And then MRI came back and was like, no, it was posterior. <laughs> yeah, like you guys physically had to like really work to get it in. Yeah. It was definitely a posterior dislocation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, well, while you're slowly on the mend, I'm tapering, yeah. which is yeah, really how are you feeling? Good. So I'm running Cascade Crest on the 21st. This podcast will come out on the 18th. Actually, our guest um today as well, Amelia Boone, is also running Cascade Crest. So I'm really excited oh, to get to see her in person. And she's also going to try not to fall because she's got a broken pinky. And she's been told, she's been told not to fall on it because they're trying to avoid <laughs> surgery. Turns out your pinkies are important for grip strength. Um, so she's trying to keep that thing safe and not fall. And I think she's going to make it to the race swimmingly, but yeah, so tapering, the weather has been super ideal. I've done my last long runs over the weekend, which actually just like, like also included a bunch of like backpacking with mm-hmm. Steven and our dog, which was super, super fun and very buggy and itchy and all the stuff, but it was like really <laughs> nice to kind of cap off training with like a fun overnight 
uh, like kind of fast pack backpack. Um, mm. but yeah, I'm like, this is my first hundred mile race since, oh my goodness, since, uh, UTMB 2019. Whoa. So, um, I'm really, really excited to be back at a hundred. I'm really excited to get to sleep in my own bed and like drive, you know, 70 minutes to the race start, mm-hmm. um, next Friday morning. And then we'll, I guess the episode after this will be kind of a recap of what the heck happens out there, which <laughs> I'm like excited and nervous about. Yeah. But your body's been holding up and you feel, yeah. does that all feel good? Yeah. I'm like really excited about it. Like, yeah, I feel like my, I'm training kind of peak volume a little bit lower than I to, to a degree, a little bit lower than I've done for some hundreds, but I've also felt more, more and more normal running over the last like four to six weeks, as far as like the body, just like really absorbing it well and feeling, yeah, feeling like my old self in a lot of ways. So that is also, I have no idea what's going to happen out there, but it's, uh, it's going to be an experience and like the goals it we're on a modified course. It's going to be an out and back instead of the loop. Um, and so it's kind of like course records off the table in that sense. Like it's a different race than what was traditionally cascade crest, which is a big clockwise loop out of Easton. We'll do an out and back. So we've got like 60 miles of PCT running. Whoa. Which will be cool. Cool. We'll see lots of through hikers out there. We'll still have the same amount of climbing. It's actually got a little bit more climbing. So this is generally thought as like the slower of the, of the courses, as opposed to going the loop because the loop has more dirt road in it. Oh, and what do they, they rerouted it due to fire or no due to, um, there's this zone called mineral Creek that's closed until October, um, for river restoration. Ah. And so they like, no one's allowed to do that area. We actually hiked past it this past weekend on our hike. We're like, Oh, normally the race turns here and goes through Uh, mineral Creek. Um, and then climbs catches Ridge and then descends back to Easton. Um, so we, yeah, we can't go through that zone this year. No one's allowed to that zone this year due to restoration. And then, um, yeah, so we're doing, we're going to Hayek and back, which they ran in 2017 due to fire. So Caitlin Gerben mm-hmm. won that year. So I've been using her kind of splits to kind of estimate what we're thinking, but it's probably going to be of like 90 minutes to two hours slower than I, what I think we could run on the normal route. So, mm, okay. yeah, Got it's it. going to be like a 22 hour race. Got it. That's a day. Yeah, it's a day cool. starting at 8 a.m. Yeah. It's yeah. Be, okay, cool. Yeah. So you'll see two sunrises or yep. kind of, yeah. Yeah, sunrise and a half. It's going to be great. Sunrise I've got three half, great yeah. pacers lined up. It's going to be cool. fun. And I can't wait to like share more with you all when I make it to the other side. That will be amazing. We can't wait to hear. Um, but before we dive into some results, um, we have to give a shout out to AG1. They've been with us since the beginning of this thing. I've been using their travel packs, traveling all of June. I've been using them as part of my morning, my in-between coffees routine, essentially. It's like my (laughs) post-run, pre-next coffee. I got an espresso machine recently. Very excited about it. So um, yeah, so AG1 is kind of my in-between, one of my in-between drinks. Um, Really, really love the product. It's for me, I've been iron deficient for a long time. While the product doesn't have iron in it, it's got probiotics and prebiotics as some of the micronutrients, et cetera, that are within that. Um, some people might call it delicious. Some people might call it lawn clippings drink, but um, scientifically speaking, symbiotics um, helps with iron absorption. So I've been using it for that. And you can try it out too, by going to athleticgreens.com slash trail society. And there with your first order, you can get a one-year free supply of immune-supporting vitamin D. 
you live in the Northern hemisphere, you need vitamin D and along with that five free travel packs of AG one. So again, go over to www.athleticgreens.com slash society and try some of that green drink today. Let's dive into results though. And I think before we dive into some like USA track and field nationals, which in my mind was very, it was a very exciting week of racing. Um, Badwater happened. We talked about Badwater this time last year because I was there on the ground crewing and pacing. Um, and I had the same athlete there this year. Um, his name's Jeremy Scanlon. He didn't, when he woke up the next day, he didn't want to tell me about his race. He wanted to tell me, he said, these are notes for the podcast. This is what I've got for you. And I thought that was really cool that Jeremy was like, here's some notes about the badass women who performed at Badwater. The first one being Ashley Paulson, who won overall. She got a lot of crap last year. There was speculation if she cut the course, if she cheated. She comes back under like pretty high scrutiny this year. She destroys the field. She destroys previous winner, um, who I think was the previous like course record, is maybe the men's course record holder from 2019, Japanese runner um, Yoshiko Iyasaka. Ishikawa. There we go. I can do wow. this. Um, she runs 21, 44, 35, destroying her own course record set last year. Mind you, there was a small course alteration this year due to flooding, but mm. according to Jeremy, he thinks that the course is super, super comparable as far as how that section ran. So just really impressive, Whoa. like heck yeah. Like come back under scrutiny and kind of just be like, what up now? Um, she seems to like be a person who has, I don't know if it's fatigue resistance or what it is, but I feel like the longer and weirder and harder the races get, particularly on flat, like on road surfaces, like I would love to see her in like a 24 hour race mm-hmm. because I think like she would be really good in that environment. Um, the second note he had was Kaylee Frederick or Frederick Frederick Kaylee Frederick became the youngest Badwater finisher ever at the Whoa. age of 18 running 40 hours, six minutes and 43 seconds. Um, she's an East coast gal, I believe. Um, so I've heard some from the East coast runners. So really, really cool to see that. Um, Pam Reed, who is when this comes out, she'll have hopefully finished bad or not bad water, uh, hard rock. And she has like, she just ran Western States. She finished, um, she finished bad water, I think for her 12th finish or something like that. And then she's got hard rock lining up and apparently, um, like, you know, she's the only person who's already done the Western States bad water, hard rock triple in the same year. And she's looking to repeat that feat here. Like Pam Reed, you ball are you. And then the last note that he had for us was Amy Costa got her ninth finish and Carla Kent got her 11th consecutive finish. And Badwater is not a race that from the outside, I think many people understand, like it's 135 miles in like 130 degree temperatures. It's, I didn't get it until I went last year and I was like, oh, I, I get it now. Like I get why people are drawn to it and I get why people come back to it. Mm. Um, what do you like, think the reason is? Cause to me, this is blows my mind. It's, I think. I think the challenge it presents of like trying to outsmart the race and outsmart the conditions and just like mm-hmm. find what you're made of. I mean, you can do that on basically any race, but this race presents some like very specific challenges mm-hmm. in that regard. It's got very different crewing than normal races. Like there's no aid stations. Like your crew literally just like drives a mile to four miles up the road at random intervals and like waits for you to run by again. And then 
you know, your pacers are literally carrying yeah. like Mr. Bottles and like running behind mm-hmm. you and like trying to mist you as you run. Like it's just got some very unique challenges. Last year we had a rookie runner with a rookie crew and we somehow survived. Um, people were like, wow, you're all rookies. Like this never happens. Like you guys are dumb. And then, you know, to send him back there with like the same crew, pretty experienced as the only, the only person not there this year with him. Um, yeah, like it's just, it's a really cool race and it brings in some really unique people, um, more from like the Ironman and triathlon world, more from like the armed services, like lots of military army folk, um, lots of kind of like firefighters, police officers, et cetera. Like it, it pulls from a, a very unique, um, subset or su- like kind of adjacent set to, I think what the broader trail and ultra world is. And it's just like, it's wild. Like it's a really cool experience. It's really hard. Um, it sounds kind of awful, but I understand why people go to it. So yeah, there's that very impressive bad water. Consider, consider putting it on your list someday in the future. Um, too much, much shorter races. We have USAs that happened in Eugene last week. Did you get to watch any of USAs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched a, a good amount of it, like mainly the 15, the fives and the 10 Ks. But yeah. I also like watched highlight reels, especially from like Sydney McLaughlin's 400. Oh my goodness. And so thing, good. And like, was just so, I was in like the 100, two, the 100 and 200 meters. Like yeah, those are Shakari was freaking yeah. crushing it. Shakari, she is amazing. Also, her pre so her pre track and field stuff, like she needs like people. I understand that she's this loud personality. Like I think that can rub people the wrong way. But like her post to I think Twitter ahead of USA's being like trying to basically organize um the track and field athletes of the US and maybe more broadly too mm. to like kind of do what we've been doing with the PTRA like kind of forming a union of sorts mm. just to be like hey decisions are being made for you and if you're not into them if like if you see what's wrong here like we can have a collective voice in this matter like we have mm. bargaining power like we have mm-hmm. the ability to like say hey like this isn't right etc so i just i want to give her mm. a huge like a bunch of praise and shout out and like i hope mm. other athletes like build the momentum that she's trying mm. to start because yeah. yeah, I think it's important. We've seen it with yeah. the PTRA. Like it's important to be able to have that like collective voice. 100%, yeah. And I'm also going to take her, her victory punch through the tape as my victory punch through any tape I break in the future. Yes. <laughs> it's just, she just looks like such a baller. Yeah. And she ran a great, she ran a great 200 as well. Yeah. Um, didn't get the win get there. But, the 200, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is yeah. still amazing. To Gabby. Yeah. Thomas, uh, Gabby so. Thomas, right? Yeah. Um, she's, I remember watching her in the last Olympics. I think she was like at that point finishing her PhD in something very, mm-hmm. very science oriented. Uh-huh. Um, cool. yeah, I'm pretty sure her name's Gabby Thomas. If it's not tell me I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> but that's what I'm picturing in my brain, but yeah, like Sydney's open 400 was amazing. It sounds like she's going to focus on the open 400 at worlds. Yeah. Not the 400 which is hurdles, so cool. Which, is which I mean, that's one so thing cool. I wanted to highlight was that there were actually people trying other races this year, like not a ton of them, but I think the two notables in my mind was Sydney and then a thing Moo, who's like an 800 meter phenom. She was basically like, cause she's already made the world standard and I guess the world team. She basically yeah. was like, ah, I don't feel like doing the hundred. I'm going to do the 15 because I'm going to get a nice workout in and got second. Yeah. Reigning. Like, so reigning world champions oh. get an automatic buy oh, okay. onto the world's team. So Sydney has an automatic buy to the 400 meter hurdles if she wanted it. Um, Authing has one to the 800. Authing okay. is going to run the 800, not the 15. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But Sydney's going to run the 400, not the 400 hurdles. And they both have the right. same 
coach now. And their coach was like, I mean, they were both like 18 year old phenoms and now Mm -hmm. they're in their early twenties and they're Olympic medalists, they're world champions, they're world record holders, et cetera. Like Mm -hmm. I think they've felt a lot of pressure to perform. They haven't raced a whole lot this year for that reason. And so I think that was just really, really cool. But the person that came out on top in the 1500 meter, which was a phenomenal race was Nikki Hiltz. And mm-hmm. the sprint finish that they put on was so cool. Um, listening to Kara Goucher and the announcing team, like nail the pronouns <laughs> throughout it was amazing. The, the finish line moment with Nikki and the other um, runners in the race with Nikki's partner um, on the side of the race. Like it was all really, really cool to see like um, people have been talking about it. And I think what it's boiling down to, to the most part is like Nikki has started to really embrace who they are and it's like showing up now in their running in a big way mm-hmm. indoor champ in the 1500 now outdoor champ in the 1500 so so cool and their quote at the end too i thought was really inspiring they said i think there's so much hate right now and specifically the bills being passed for trans youth i feel like the lgbtq community needed a win and there's so many things that go through your mind in the race and for whatever reason that was kind of in the back of my mind I looked up into the stands and I saw a trans flag in the audience and I thought, Hey, I bet that's for me. Mm -hmm. And like this win is for them. So I thought that was just, it was cool. And the amount of support and, um, champion championing that other runners in the sport, other people in the community are like, have come out of it, I think is just really inspirational. Mm -hmm. So hell yeah. Yeah. Watching them find their stride alongside their voice has been really cool. Yeah. 403, such a fast such a fat business. I don't want to mess with that. (laughs) No, thank you. We'll stick to the, uh, the, uh, the mountains and the rain and the weather and the (laughs) slogging. Um, you don't slog. I do a lot of slogging. You do a lot of running, I feel like, but it all balances. But the other two things that I wanted to talk about were some races that are either currently being canceled or were canceled due to weather. The first one was the European World Series Major at Valderon in the Spanish Pyrenees by UTMB. Um, it got canceled late. The 110K got canceled towards the end of the event or like kind of like middle end of the event. I think only four women made it to the finish line. Um, oh. The rest of them got got stopped at, at the 102 kilometer mark, including like Stephanie um, Howe, who's okay, back for like her first meant. ultra okay. post, um, post like having her having her son. Um, so yeah, only four women made it to the finish line there. The rest got stopped on the mountain. Um, the hundred mile event was only like 30 to 40 kilometers in, um, Alyssa Clark. I like reached out to her cause I knew she was racing. And I said, Hey, like that looked awful. Like they got hit by hail in the first 90 minutes of the race and it just got worse and worse and worse. And mm-hmm. she told me that it was the scariest storm she's ever been in. And then she made a point too, to mention that like, we like oftentimes kind of like give a lot of crap to carrying mandatory gear. Like, Oh, why do I have to have this rain jacket? Why do I have to have this base layer? Why do I have to have X, Y, and Z thing, et cetera, et cetera. And Alyssa made a point to say like, I needed every piece of gear out there. And like, it would not have been safe to run this race without it. And I'm like, she turned around before the race was called and like started picking up runners along the way and brought them back to the last aid station that they'd come through. And then like, once they got there, the race had been canceled. So just like, yeah, made the move to be like, this isn't safe. Like, and I think that was just like really the race organization handled it really well. It feels like, and then like the runners themselves handled it really well too, to be like, yeah, we don't, this is not good. We should not be out here. Mm -hmm. Cool. No death before 
DNF. No, no, no death nope, before not at all. mountain hundred finish. Yeah. Yeah. You can stop and then go run another one sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, or the non-funny thing is, is that Alyssa then flew back to the States because she was going to run the Vermont 100 mile. The Vermont 100 mile and 100K that's supposed to happen this weekend. Um, we're recording ahead of the weekend of like the 16th, 17th. Um, the Vermont 100 mile and 100K were supposed to happen this weekend. Well, Vermont just had historic flooding. Like the state is devastated. Roads are closed. Roads are destroyed. They've had to cancel the race. Um, and so Dude, like, yeah. Yeah. Sad. Alyssa was like, you know what? Maybe the universe is telling me to like, just take a break for a second. Um, but I feel so bad for Amy Rizeki and her crew at the Vermont 100. They had to cancel two years in a row due to COVID due to the timing of their race being in July. And then, um, yeah, having to cancel again this year due to, due to the natural disaster is just bad luck and really hard as a race director. So thinking of my friends out in Vermont and the runners affected and the communities affected, um, et cetera. I know I lived out in New York when we had a bunch of flooding, um, in upstate New York one summer, it was really horrible. Like bridges were washed out all over the state. Um, those rivers, yeah, they get kind of crazy. So ho- like thinking about all of you and thinking of Amy Rizeki and her crew, just cause it's, it's not easy. It's like really, just really bad luck. Totally. Yeah. And it's, again, there are bigger things to worry about than the race. Yeah. So, I'm prioritizing those. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed wholeheartedly. Um, so let's move on to a little bit of news before we dive into our meat and potatoes today with Amelia. Um, the big thing that I've seen everywhere, including like when I retire, I want to post in the New York times. I'm kind of say that now. Can I request a New York times feature on my retirement? Um, Megan Rapino will announce that she will retire after this, um, NWSL season. Um, and the upcoming or like about to start world cup, women's world cup. This will be her fourth world cup. Um, I've got to go see another rain game here in Seattle before she retires. Um, because you know, she's mm-hmm. been around for a hot second. Um, a quote from the article says after 17 years on team USA and nearly as many years speaking out to support various issues, including LGBTQ rights, equal pay, Black Lives Matter movement and voter rights. Rapino will play in her fourth Women's World Cup and her final season in the National Women's Soccer League. She said she feels peaceful and grateful that she can end her career on her own terms and at the top of her sport too. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I retiring is not easy in professional athletics and what she's done on the pitch and off the pitch for, for women's soccer and for so many other issues that intersect mm-hmm. sport has just been really, really wonderful to 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 be kind of on the sidelines for over the last 10, 15 years. So hats off to Megan Rapino. You don't listen to this, but we uh, want to give you a shout out. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we can, maybe with all of her free time, we could get her to come on the podcast mm. one day. I know I've, a friend of <laughs> mine is friends with the massage therapist for the rain. So maybe we can okay. figure out how to weasel our way into the rain locker room one of these days. <laughs> and then you dropped in some news out of yeah. some England as well. Yeah, I got this from a DM on the Trail Society pod. So thank you to those of you sending us really cool articles. We do look at the DMs. It takes us a little bit. So keep them coming. But, <laughs> but we do. I read them. I read a lot of them. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we got an article talking about Swim England. They are banning the weighing of children under 18 because up until recently, they weighed, they basically had all of the females and males have 
weigh-ins all the time to gauge progress. And they were finding that that was correlated to a lot of mental health issues and a lot of disordered eating um, and a lot of like abuse allegations around um, feeling like they were stereotyped and like told by their superiors that they needed to have a certain body type. Um, and these were all current and former, basically really successful swimmers for the country. Um, and so the organization has implemented this kind of in response to these outcries for all organizations that are underneath Swim England, which encompasses a lot of the swim programs. Um, and it's kind of in line with other countries who have also done a similar policy, um, most notably British swimming, Scottish swimming, and swim whales. So they've all done a similar policy in order to decrease the prevalence of these mental health issues and disordered eating in the female and male swimmers. And so, you know, it's one step. Um, in the fight of disordered eating and body dysmorphia in young athletes. And I think it's a good step. Um, they still can weigh children when it's medically necessary. So there is like a little asterisk in there. But again, it's like when it's required by someone's physician to actually like determine their health. And so it's not something coaches can just do because they want to. Yep. And even then we've talked about this, I think uh, with Liz Carey, I want to say we talked a little bit too about like weigh-ins in doctor's offices, et cetera. And like, while um, it might be quote unquote medically necessary for it to be recorded in your chart, you can also request that it's done in a way in which you don't, when you, where you turn around, so you don't see the number where that number isn't shared with you on a like follow-up form, et cetera. Um, because that, like that is triggering for a lot of people who have dealt with sort of eating or eating disorders in their past. So, um, there are resources available kind of in that regard as well, like where you can print out a sheet and bring it with you to the doctor's yeah. office and be like, Hey, this is what's going on type of thing. Yeah. And you can advocate for yourself there, um, yeah. and just tell them or give them a paper that tells them. Yeah. That you exactly. don't want to be weighed. Yeah. So yeah. And if you need those resources, reach out. I believe we've got some links probably stored in our emails from folks like Liz and Ladia, et cetera, and um probably Caitlin Jacobson as well that we yeah. can pass along. Yeah, and quick... I've done it before. It's not embarrassing. I was just gonna yeah. say I did it when I was struggling my first injury like four years ago when I still was not out of the weeds of like disordered thoughts and just unhealthy behaviors and going to the doctors, I was, that was the biggest stressor I had was getting weighed because I was still just like not with it fully and also injured. And so just not something I needed. And I asked and they obliged and it was really like, it released, relieved a lot of my anxiety at yeah. that time. Yeah. And it can be like, Hey, like this isn't necessary for what I'm here for. So therefore this doesn't need to be in my chart or does it, I doesn't, doesn't need to happen today, et cetera. But yeah, it's definitely, yeah, you can, you can not be in a state of disordered eating, but just know that your mental health is like a little bit on, on edge and like, don't, don't add something to the mental health bucket that doesn't need to be there. Don't add something to fixate on. It doesn't need to be there. Exactly. So I avoid, I avoid fixation. I mean, that's why we don't like, we don't use a scale in our house, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, it's not for me. So like, it doesn't need to be for you either. Um, quick, quick ad read before we dive into our meat and potatoes for today. And that's giving a shout out to the feed. Um, you guys have been sharing your Trail Society water bottles with us on um, Instagram. We love to see these water, bo water bottles out in the wild. Mine is currently in the dishwasher upstairs. Um, but if you would like some feed credit towards your next kind of snack box, again, the feeds that one-stop shop, I really like it for trying new product, um, testing new flavors of products, um, or testing out product that might be on our upcoming race course, for example. Um, and so you can go over to www.thefeed.com slash trail society. There you can enter a little bit of information and get a $15 
credit per quarter. So $60 over the course of the year to you use towards a upcoming order. Again, talking about like wanting to try something out that might be on the race course. Um, you know, knock is a sponsor for UTMB, um, hammer is a sponsor for an upcoming race. Goo is a sponsor for another race, et cetera. Like if that's not in your normal repertoire, spring was the gel sponsor at broken arrow. If you want to try something that you know, is going to be available to you on the race course, but it hasn't been part of your maybe normal eating plan being able to buy, you know, one or two gels or one or two drink mix packets of Roctane or Tailwind or, or whatever it is that all of a sudden gives you an ability to test it out on your, on your long run before you get to the race so that, you know, if you're going to tolerate that product out there, which I think is super valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to get the water bottle, you just go to the feed.com slash trail society. You hit claim your reward. And then you have an option at checkout that says like, get my water bottle get your water so bottle. So we've had a couple inboxes come in saying they couldn't figure out how to get the water bottle. That's how you do it. <laughs> Love it. You say claim that water bottle and the, the, uh, the people, I don't think they're robots. I think they're people on the other side of the feed. Helpful. Well, are very, very helpful. They'll, uh, they'll give you a hand there as well. So get yeah. over there, get your water bottle. And then, uh, yeah. I want to see, I want to see photos on Instagram. So yeah. yeah. And we also should reach out to the feed and see if they can help out our international customers in any way. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll see what we, we have can some do shout outs and yeah, <laughs> we'll see what we we'll, can do. We'll for investigate for you guys. Stay patient. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. Let me know. Maybe I'll just bring a whole box of water bottles with me to UTMB and we can just start throwing them at people. <laughs> the feed hit us up. Okay. Right now we've got to dive into an interview with a fan favorite, a person that we've been I mean, we've actually, I feel like we've name dropped her a lot on previous episodes in talking about body image, disordered eating, speaking out on these topics, long-term consequences of disordered eating, et cetera. We've read her blog posts, her Instagram posts, et cetera. And now for the first time ever, we get to welcome the Amelia Boone to the Two Trail Society. Let's uh, get out of the way and dive in to what I think is going to be an excellent interview. Uh, who am I? Uh, I'm currently in this iteration of life. I am an ultra runner. Uh, I came from obstacle racing, as many people know, and uh, I'm an attorney. I foster dogs. I love pop tarts. Pretty much things like that. Yeah, you're That's like the, the, the rundown. Takes, takes all the boxes. Oh, and, I, and I and I hate pants. I generally hate pants and not UK version of pants. Don't get me wrong. Like us version of pants. So what's a UK version of pants. It's, it means underwear apparently over there. Uh, So whenever I, whenever I say I hate pants, people like Londoners are like, what? And I'm like, Oh, it means something different. Okay, cool. You're like, no, the Not those pants. pants. I hate the overpants. Like the, the leg, the, the leg lot prisons. Yeah. The leg. We once I once took a picture with Courtney DeWalter, and um it was it, like our shorts in comparison, because I wear like tiny, tiny split shorts and she wears like super long ones. And we were like, it was hilarious. You're like, we anyway. both hate pants, but our shorts are still very different beings. Yeah very much. I love it. Well, one of the things I wanted to like dive into right away was, um, you know, I, when I first, like, I think one of the first interviews I heard like with you ever 
was talking about like running in horrible weather in Chicago and at the same time, like <laughs> competing in things like the death race. So like, how does a Chicago based attorney find themselves doing things like the death race? It's a good question. Um, so I think that I was in a space. So first of all, I did, I decided that I like kind of wanted to get into shape or to run a tough matter. And that was like the only, only kind of uh, motivation that I had. And then based off of that, I decided I could run for 24 hours. Like there's no idea. Like I was like, I was, there was no reason for me to think that I had any type of endurance in me. But I think I was kind of living in this landlocked area and it was super flat and I just wanted to do something different. And maybe it was also just this idea that like, oh, I can push my boundaries. I can test my limits, that kind of stuff. And living in Chicago, I actually didn't know about ultra running. I didn't know this was a thing. So I like learned about obstacle racing and I was like, oh, this is the, this is how I can do it. Um, this is how I can run up and down mountains and do all those things. Um, and then later on, I kind of learned like, oh, there's an actually an entire sport that does that, that also doesn't involve like crawling under barbed wire and whatnot. But <laughs> I think it was just kind of, I accidentally fell into it and it was yeah. something different and something totally different than anybody in Chicago or any of my friends were doing. So it just seemed like fun to me. I also found that the death race was, I don't, does the death race exist anymore? Like that? It does actually. Oh, no mm -hmm. way. Cause that's like different than even like OCR, right? You're like carrying, you yes. have to like show up with like a thousand pennies and like a Greek to right. English dictionary. Like it's really weird. I feel like it is super weird. And it was kind of like, you don't really know when it starts. You definitely don't know when it ends. The entire idea is that you kind of keep going until they tell you, you can stop. And sometimes that was 36 hours. Sometimes I think the longest one we did was like 79 hours. Um, and, um, it has changed a bunch mainly for insurance purposes. Like we used to take axes out there and we used to like assemble bicycles and, and now they, they like, can't really do things like that. And especially like the chopping down trees type of thing. Um, so, but it does still kind of exist, but not in the same type of iteration for sure. Yeah. It had a very distinct flavor and I think it probably yeah. attracted a very interesting cohort of humans. Um, yeah. that I imagine like we're bonded for life after that too. Cause those experiences, I feel like akin to like a bad water. It's like, I don't understand bad water from the outside, but now having been to bad water, right. like you get it. Like, it's just this weird thing that once you're in it, you're in for life. Yeah. And the same is similar to me for like world's toughest mutter, the 24 hour obstacle race. Cause like when we did that in 2011 and it was in December in New Jersey, it was like 25 degrees was the high and then the low was in the teens and you're in and out of water. And I think that first group of us that did it that year have generally just keep coming back because you are kind of like oddly bonded with all of those other people um, in some type of weird, miserable suffering that you thrust upon yourself. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Therapists, uh, therapists listening to this are going to be like, that's called trauma bonding. Like <laughs> this is, that is what you did. You experienced trauma together and now you're bonded for life. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, I think probably ultras are a lot like that too. <laughs> 
You and I, trauma bonding <laughs> next week. Here we come. Exactly. Trauma bonding at Cascade Crest. Yeah. Um, kind of speaking of that OCR background a little bit, but kind of pivoting away. Like I think we, most of us like were introduced to you via like the OCR kind of really taking off. Like, you know, you were the, like in quotes, mm-hmm. like the queen of pain on the magazine covers, um, you know, world champion OCR athlete. And there's kind of this pivot of all of a sudden, like you've been at the top of that sport and then trail and ultra wanders into your life. And I would just love to hear a little bit about like what, like what it meant and and how it happened. Like, how did you become part yeah. of this trail and ultra community? Cause I feel like you've really found a home in it in the last, you know, seven, eight years. Yeah. It's interesting because I think it, when I look back on it, I think a part of me kind of turned to trail and ultra as, as a means to run away from the pressure of, or the perceived pressure of OCR. Cause I had been winning races. I was a world champion. And I just, I felt like every race I showed up at, I couldn't, I couldn't have fun. Cause I felt like I had to win or otherwise people would be disappointed in me. Taken years of therapy to understand that was all in my head. But I think I initially kind of switched over to ultra running because it was something where I didn't feel pressure. And my first, my second 100K, I won't count the first one, but my second one was John Ryan. I actually ran away to a goal take and I've talked about a bunch. I ended up with a femoral stress fracture. I didn't run Western States. And then I started on an injury cycle for many years. And so it's weird because I never felt like I actually, I felt like my entrance into ultra running was a little bit stymied. Like I couldn't, I felt like I had potential that I left on the table and that I actually felt like an imposter for a lot of time. Cause I was like, Oh, Hey, ultra world. Actually, I'm like super injured and breaking bones the entire time. I'm trying to get into you. Um, but I've found that, you know, you can still connect even when when you're not racing, even when you're on the sidelines, you know, like going out and crewing and pacing and doing all those fun things. So it's been fun. And I've been like super fortunate that people have welcomed me in, um, just because I think, you know, sometimes you feel kind of like an outsider. Um, but now I just, I love everyone. Yeah, earlier in this episode, we talked about both Sydney McLaughlin, Lavroni, and um, Athing Mu kind of like racing outside of their discipline mm. in track and field. Yeah. And part of that was to remove like that perceived pressure from being, you know, standout all stars in very specific races, being the 800 and the 400 meter hurdles. So I think that that is a very real thing that many of us deal with that kind of self worth results oriented. Um, thing being tied together, which we can think dive into more later on. But one thing that kind of, I wanted to bridge into was, you know, one of the reasons I think many of us admire you is that you've been very authentic and wearing your heart on your sleeve. Some people call it vulnerable. Some people call it authentic or true to yourself, but I think we have a deep appreciation for the fact that you've kind of put yourself out there over and over again, being really open, um, both on social media and your blog, like long live blogs, um, special <laughs> shout out to the written word. <laughs> yes. But yes. yeah, like the, um, I think we've talked about this in person actually, but there's like, there's an increased rate of like having like a lot of parasocial relationships because of that social media presence where people really think 
they know you and they've never met you. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, as you like, you have to grapple with that as a person, a person at events, Mm -hmm. like still living your life while still continuing to share. Just I'm curious, like how that's either been either difficult in some of the sharing process or like how you've adjusted, how you've decided to share parts of your story because of this like parasocial influence. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I do remember having that conversation because it would be me putting something out there and then just getting a ton of unsolicited feedback on things that I wasn't even like asking for people who thought they knew better. And especially when it was around things like when I was talking about eating disorder recovery and talking about diet and health at every size and just getting people just pushing back on that. I'm like, I'm not, you can have difference of opinions. Like I'm not pushing this on you. I'm just telling you what I believe. Um, and you know, honestly, I hasn't really, there are some times where I will pause and be like, Ooh, do I really want to put this out there? Because what am I inviting? Um, but I think for the most part, I've just become better at handling it and, or not, not taking it personally when people do give that feedback, um, and just kind of brushing it off. And I think in some ways I've also kind of softened my views around a lot of things, like as the years kind of progress. Um, and so I don't feel the need to like take militant stances on certain things around eating disorder recovery anymore. And so maybe in that regard, I also then give other people grace. Um, but it's, it's a double-edged sword because I, I love everything that social media has been able to connect us with. Like I first connected with both of you via social media, you know, I think before ever like meeting in person. Um, but also then understanding that there are going to be downsides. Um, And I also will say when you're not as much in the spotlight anymore, like I think I went through a few years where I really felt like, like, you know, and because when I first come out about the eating disorder, like I had a lot of people tuning in, which was great, but now it's like, ah, people don't care as much anymore. So I don't really have, I don't really have as many people like, you know, being strange on social media. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, oh, it's kind of nice that people don't need to weigh in on my personal lived right. experience. And that's what it is, right? Like it's opinion and it's yeah. your beliefs, but it's also like your personal lived experience. And it's like, I think that yeah. that's an important distinction to make, you know, like there are times where we like, are like, I've, this is what I've gleaned from the research, et cetera. This is what mm-hmm. we are like trying to share. There's also like a, there's value in saying like, I understand this is not everyone's experience, but like, this is my personal experience. And like, maybe that matters or connects with someone else. And I think that that is like an important distinction that's oftentimes missed on social media. Yeah. And I think I've also realized I've really tried in this past year or so to stop caveating and like appeasing everyone and just understanding that there are going to be people who don't agree with me. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of trying to trying to couch it everything in a way that's like, okay, but this may not be true for everybody and blah, blah, blah. And then you just, I mean, maybe I'm, since I'm an attorney, I always like to give all those disclaimers, but I remember it was one of my good friends who was like, you gotta stop like re-apologizing for everything you say. And that kind of hit home in understanding that, wow, I really was doing that a lot. Yeah. I think women, I think in general, like we're more, uh, taught, expected, have learned to kind of like 
set up our opinion with an apology of like, I don't want to step on any toes, but I think this is X, Y, or Z thing. Like that is ingrained in us, I think from very, very young ages. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I want to dive into, and this was an article that I think hit home with a lot of people um, in 2021. It's actually, you know, we've got a lot of listeners in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who are going through very similar things in life right now, be it life circumstance or medical conditions, et cetera. But it's like that sudden facing of the fertility time clock. And I'm going to, I'm going to read some quotes. Um, I'm probably going to do this a couple of times throughout the podcast. So bear with me as I read your words back to you, but this quote stood out to me and it says, so a few months ago, when I found myself 37 years old and recently single again, I could not have anticipated or prepared myself for the sudden wave of grief that came over me. When I finally confronted the fact that my time may have run out that maybe I wouldn't ever have biological children and that I wouldn't have a say in it anymore. And like that to me is like, and the important part is like this, like say in it that like shocks people. And then you go on to say, kind of questioning yourself, like, why am I grieving something so hard that I was never sure I wanted? How do I mourn a life path that I never took? I've got so many questions or so many questions raced through my head. If I was suddenly truly indifferent or undecided about having children all these years, why do I now suddenly feel this massive hole? And I like, I've got friends going through this right now who are in their twenties. I've got friends yeah. who have recently gone through this in their forties, um, be it life circumstance or medical conditions, kind of all of a sudden making this a really like relevant, sudden topic. And this article was written in 2021, you know, kind of, this was that grappling with the egg freezing journey. And I'm wondering now that you have like just a little bit of space from the initial like blog posts, like, like reflecting on that time period around the emotional component surrounding the child question, like where, like reflecting on that time, but then also kind of like where you are now with this like same topic in mind. Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, it's weird. I'm like, oh, whoa, I wrote those words. And I like, I, but I yeah. can, I can feel, I start to get kind of choked up because I can feel what I was feeling in those moments. And I think you know, with a lot of time removed and yes, I did go through the egg freezing process and I I do have eggs frozen. I think I paid my storage bills. Um, but sorry, not joke. Um, but I think it's something that is going to, I, at that time, a lot of people were like, Oh, you're still young. You're only 37. There's plenty of time, et cetera, et cetera. I, which is a super dismissive thing to say, because I think that people, as you said, can go through this at any age. It can be in their twenties, because as we know, like you generally have better luck getting pregnant the younger they are, or it can be later. It can be in your forties. And I think for me, the, the edges around it have softened. I haven't come to any conclusions, um, but I'm glad I went through that process of really digging into that grief and really understanding. and what I've kind of come to learn and to realize is that there are so many different paths in life that we can take and, you know, different decisions are going to lead us in so many different directions. And you can have a life that's beautiful with children. You can have a life that's beautiful without children. And like, you can't, you can feel free to mourn that, but you you can't get caught up in thinking that that's the only life path that will bring you joy and happiness. 
it's just another kind of piece of the puzzle. And Cheryl Strayed, who's one of my favorite authors and writers, has this wonderful short piece that's like uh, the ghost ships that didn't carry us. That's really about that, that it's like you you sit there and you can like salute those ships from shore. But those are the ones, those are the decisions we didn't make. And so I think I've kind of really come to a place of peace now with it, but I had to go through two years of grappling with it. And I, I don't think there's a way to circumvent or to shortcut that grief and that process. I think everyone is going to have to go through it in their own time. Yeah. I'm curious. Cause I think, and you reflect on this in the article too, about that, like um, that motherhood intersecting with like peak career for a lot of endurance athletes too. And just being like, yeah, in my, in my early thirties, like the place I was in life, be it in relationship or out of relationship or like being in an endurance sport, just kind of like, do you think that that's changed a little bit, at least within, I think kind of broadly within women's sports, as far as like knowing that, you know, we've got so many amazing mother runners out there that have been able to like start a family and come back to sport? Like, have you seen that shift at all? I think so. I think more and more we have examples of that. At the same time, there's more and more women speaking out about how coming back isn't easy, you know, mm-hmm. that it's not that, you know, that it like you're some people that can have children and then come back within six months and be crushing races. And then others, it's going to be a struggle wow. for a for a long time. And I appreciate those voices because I think there needs to be more light shed on that. So I don't think that there is a good answer for anyone. Unfortunately, it's, it's always a risk that you take and then understanding the trade-offs in that. Yeah. It's a, it's a risk. It's a decision. It's like, it's a choice of a path, a path. I think you got kind of reflecting on that or reflecting in the opposite direction on that in the piece, you, you mentioned this idea that I think is like, has been very prevalent in society for a long time, that society seems to value women more when they're mothers. Like we value women Mm -hmm. who are doing it all, who have the career, who have the kids, who have, you know, the, the race they're training for, et cetera. And like reflecting on our peer group, for example, like I've got, yes, I've got friends with, with children or actively trying to have kids. And I've got friends who have been like, yeah, no, it's not the path for me. And I'm wondering like, as you've continued to move along your own kind of pathway here, do you think that like as society, this is like a big question to put on you as society, Amelia, weigh in on society here. (laughs) Do you think that we're getting better at like just accepting people's choice to forego children too, though? Like, I, I feel like we're, we're slowly shifting towards like, at least that becoming more common. I, I want to say that that, that we are as a society, but I also notice it in myself. So, and I, I haven't really vocalized this, but I think in the past two years, I've come to the realization that I do not feel the need to have my own biological children. And I'm not saying that may shift again, but I realize I'm actually hesitant to say that because of potential judgment still. Um, and so I don't think we're totally, because I still feel kind of the stigma about that. I don't think we're totally there yet as a, like, and and to have for, you know, but it's, it's getting there for sure. But I do think that there is this kind of unwritten uh, kind of taboo around just proudly proclaiming children are not for me. And 
because the amount of blowback you get from that, and I unfortunately have to say it's mainly from men, is is pretty is pretty incredible and shocking. And I dealt with a lot of it, especially when outside published that piece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you're like, once again, didn't expect your opinions to come back, but it's right. Yeah, it's interesting that I I've got friends who deal with that too, where they like, yeah, kids aren't for them, but yeah, the constant pushback of like, well, aren't you sure? Like, aren't you gonna regret making right. this decision? And they're like, no, I kind of love my life. And that is like, you're allowed to love having kids and you're allowed to not want right. to raise your own kids. And that is totally fine. Society yeah. just has to get on board. I think um, <laughs> one, one podcast at a time, um, <laughs> one non-male podcast at a time. Yeah, we'll there slowly, you go. Slowly make a difference there. One less man with a podcast. That's what, that's my new t-shirt idea. Um, <laughs> oh my God. I would totally buy that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. We'll come up with something really sassy for it. Um, Perfect. I've got one more question kind of on this topic and it's obviously yeah. this is a little tangential, but I saw recently, I don't know if it was a tweet or a thread because I can't keep up with social media trends anymore, but it was your response to Carolyn Gleick, who's a like mm-hmm. badass ski mountaineer um, human. And she recently went through the egg freezing process and was kind of like public or just recently public about like having dealt with, um, OHSS, which is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome and kind of like recurrent SI joint and some pelvic floor issues post egg retrieval. And like, we're wandering into like N of two territory a little bit here, but we've got a lot of (laughs) listeners who have either gone through this or are considering going through this. So just kind of wondering, you know, was this something that you feel like wasn't widely shared pre-procedure that you're realizing like is a common symptom or is it something that like just happens to impact athletes more? Like once again, not to like put all this societal pressure on you to answer the one question for me, but just like, I thought it was really interesting and I thought it was really cool too, how you like responded to Carolyn and shared it too, being like, Hey, like, is this normal? Like, are we like out, like, are we outliers here? Like, I think that information is good for people who are listening to this, trying to figure out what their next step is. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question because I agree. I think um, I'm glad I went through egg freezing. I also wish I had asked a lot more questions or had a lot more information before I went in because they told me, you know, you may have to take, take two weeks off from running in and you'll be back and you'll be fine. And that's how I approached it. And I had mild OHSS as well. Um, And I think that, and then I ended up like a month or two later with pretty debilitating hip and SI joint issues that lasted for several months and knocked me out of running. And is it related? Is it just coincidental? I have a bum right hip anyway, that tends to flare. So it's hard for me, you know, like sometimes for me to like make those connections, but I've heard anecdotally enough from other women who have had other issues, um, you know, post-retrieval that, and they mainly tend to be women athletes. And so I don't know if it's just because we're way more in tune with our bodies And so when anything shifts, you're just going to feel different. And I mean, if you think about it, your estrogen levels like skyrocket. I don't remember what mine was, but it was like horrifying. And that's got to do stuff to whatever is going on pelvic floor, you know, like injecting yourself with that much hormone has the potential to like really alter things as much, not as much as pregnancy, but almost in a way like a smaller version of that. So 
I think that it's something worth for anyone who's looking at, I don't want to scare anybody off, you know, because I, I still think it's a worthwhile process and I'm glad I went through it. But I do think really take it into consideration. I would highly recommend taking it very, very easy returning. I went straight into Barkley training. Terrible idea, you know? Um, so <laughs> yeah, I would just, I would, I would try and plan it and give yourself, I would say, I would give yourself like two months around it to be like very, very chill, but yeah, end of one. It's the, like when I'm talking to friends who are going in for surgery for random injuries or traumatic injuries, yeah. et cetera. And it's like, yeah, like you want the honest surgeon. You want the person who tells you like, yeah, yeah. this is going to take a long time versus the like optimistic surgeon of like, you're going to be back running in three weeks. And you're like, am I like, I'd, I'd rather get yeah. the like six week or the two month, whatever, like this is as the, like the worst case scenario is X and like, let's mm -hmm. focus on that versus this like hyper expedited timeline, because I think you're right. right. I think a lot of women need more time to recover post female athletes in particular post egg retrieval. So good to keep in mind. Good to ask lots of questions, but yeah, hopefully yeah. no, no fear. I know it's like, whenever you read reviews about stuff, you're only going to read the bat, like it's only bad reviews. So <laughs> know that it's not a completely, completely awful experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, like don't Google this stuff because it will tell you terrible things. Yeah. Good life lesson in general. So yeah. ask your friends, not let them be. Um, you, pivoting. Yeah. did you, did you find that after you had the egg retrieval, you had like a overwhelming sense of relief or anything like that? Or that's a good question. Um, I think the hard part is that I learned via the egg retrieval than just how hard it is to actually, let's say you get 30 eggs, your chance of actually getting one of those 30 eggs to then implant and then produce a bait, go to term as a baby is maybe like two, two out of those 30. So like, it's like 2% success. I, the, the number is atrocious. So it's like, you have this insurance policy, but in some ways it's not even really an insurance policy because of like how many things that can happen along the way when you go though, then to make embryos and then to implant those embryos and then try to carry that to term. So I wouldn't say it's an, it's a, like a little bit sense of relief. Like I have the option still, but I also know that if I decided to use those eggs and to go back and do that, there would be a lot of stress. There'd be a lot of heartache. There would be a very high chance that I may actually not, you know, get pregnant as a result. So I think that's worth to bear in mind. I think a lot of women go into thinking it like, oh, whatever, I'll just freeze some eggs and then I'll be good. But like find a doctor who will tell you how low of a chance it is that you actually have of getting pregnant from those eggs. Because those are the good doctors too. <laughs> yeah. And then kind of piggybacking off that, I feel like to put it bluntly, I feel like doctors kind of shit on you for being an athlete. And like going yep. into this process, like, I feel like I remember seeing this in a story or talking to you about it, a parasocial relationship there. I was like, did Amelia tell me this or did I perceive it <laughs> from social media? But this idea that they were like, oh, you haven't gotten your period in a long time. Like, oh, mm -hmm. like, I feel like they really like, yeah, they like, they shit on your like body a bit. And I feel like 
there was this kind of like, okay, like, will this even work? Will I produce eggs? What will happen from it? Can like, was there a sense of relief of being like, oh, my body can do stuff, even though the doctor was like pretty like, we're tell- we're like, you know, on one hand we're saying, yeah, we want the like not optimistic doctor, but on the other hand, like how cool yeah. is it for your body to do what it was supposed to do? It was actually amazing. And I, I, I wanted to actually just, I, I, my doctor was very proficient at what he did, but I wanted to give him the middle finger after it was all done in complete honesty, because he told me going into this, he's like, with your history of an eating disorder, with what you do as running, like you will probably get very little eggs. And I actually started the freezing process three days after world's toughest matter. So three days after winning or after, sorry, I didn't win after running 24 hours. And he was like, in absolutely no way. He's like, you need to rest and stop running for at least eight weeks beforehand to give yourself the best chance. And I got a lot of eggs like to exceed. I don't know the quality of them, but I got a lot of eggs. And so there was this part of me that just wanted to give him the middle finger the entire time and be like, no, my body is actually capable. And yes, I've done a lot of damage to it, but also like, I don't need you to dismiss me. So there's that flip side to it. Yeah. That's kind of brutal. And it's like, once again, just kind of the black box of women of like female physiology and women's health. And like, yeah, like it being this belief that if we run every day, we must like be horrible to our bodies, et cetera. So, ah, say la vie. We'll, uh, we'll keep keep fighting the good fight over here again. One less, one less due to the podcast. That's what we're here for. (laughs) Um, but pivoting a little bit. And once again, this is going to be me reading more quotes of your own words at you, but I want to talk about the 2019 piece that you wrote for outside as well. I think they actually, it was a blog, a blog post originally on your, on your personal blog that that was Mm -hmm. was shared on outside. And I think it was a really, a really great article. And I think it really meant a lot to a lot of people to read it and hear it from you and see it. And essentially like we've seen you on the top of podiums. We've seen you sidelined by injury. You mentioned that your inch, your entry into ultra running was hampered a bit by like a long injury cycle. And in 2019, you actually took a leave of absence from work to go to Opal food and body wisdom, because as you said in the blog that in quotes, looking the part of an athlete doesn't mean shit if you're too injured to get to the start line. And I thought that that was like pretty spot on. You've struggled with an eating disorder for much of your life. And I'm just wondering like what it meant in 2019 to like confront it head on again and be like, no, I like, I can't white knuckle my way through this. Like I need to respect myself and my body and, and figure this out. Yeah. I mean, I think it was probably the best decision that I've ever made, um, in terms of getting a hold on and just on what was going on and also just living my truth. Because I think that that was the hardest part for me, especially when, when I was kind of on the top of obstacle racing and, and doing really well and winning races, but then also knowing what I was doing to my body at that time and just feeling like it was super shameful and that I couldn't tell people about that. Because if I told people about that, everyone would judge me. I would lose sponsors. People would think I was the crazy girl. I always hid eating my eating disorder from significant others because I was like, Oh, they're, they're, I can't have mental health issues. You know, I can't, I can't be open. I can't be honest about this. I can't tell anyone that I was diagnosed with OCD when I was six years old. Like I can't tell people these things because I will be ostracized and outcast. Um, so for me, this decision was really kind of an embracing myself a whole, like even the, the parts that were pretty scary and ugly 
and feeling like for the first time I could actually show up as myself to the rest of the world as I felt internally as well. And I think owning that process was very important for me to actually even then be able to give recovery a chance. Because in the past where I had like gone into treatment facilities and then, but not told anybody about it or not shared that process, like recovery didn't stick for me um, because I felt like I was still hiding a bunch of stuff. Um, So I, I think it was very much a decision to say, to be like, I am facing in the arena here, Bill Brene Brown, and just like, I, I can't, like, I'm at, like, this is me and this is what I have going on. And I'm just going to lay it all out there and see what happens. And I was terrified of like hitting publish on that blog post and instantly overwhelmed at the response, like in a good way. I did not think it would gain traction like it did. I didn't think people would care like they did. I was not expecting the volume of stories to come out of it. And I'm super grateful to this day that I chose to share and that like it, that it resonated with so many people. Yeah. There's this, this long, but really important paragraph in it that I pulled out and you go on to say, The reality is while I no longer define my world around my eating disorder identity for all those years, I hadn't fully let go. I hung on to disordered thoughts and eating habits. The only difference now was that I had a sport to fixate on instead. And I was at the top of the obstacle racing world. I was a quote, normal BMI. I was muscular and I was winning every race. So it was easy to minimize my disordered relationship with food. It was easy to compartmentalize the thoughts and say, hush, I'll deal with you later or to think that there actually wasn't a problem because I was performing so well. It was okay to have a different diet or eating patterns because I was an athlete. It was okay to compare my body to other female athletes on the start line and covet their abs because that's just what women do. It was acceptable to dehydrate myself and starve myself before cover shoots because that was part of the gig. As long as I was competing and winning, just managing with food didn't seem like as big of a deal because I was getting away with it. So clearly there was no problem. And there's this like, to me, there's that like idea of like, and we, we do this, like everyone does this. I think it's like, we're allowed to, we've talked to a number of athletes about this actually on the podcast too, of like things that we, that we code for disordered eating, right? Like a specific Mm -hmm. diet or a restriction. It's always like, it's us coding for this other thing. And I think that that's like really prevalent in that experience of like, well, like I'm an athlete, so I can do this, or this is what women do, or this is what sport does. Like, it's all okay. I'm fine. Like I can manage. And I'm like, once again, this is like the parasocial bit. It's like, we've seen this dramatic shift in like your relationship with, with food, with your body, with sport. And I'm wondering, you know, like telling us a little bit more about recognizing that those things that you told yourself were okay and are, and, or were normal, like how they don't, like they don't serve you anymore. And just kind of like mm-hmm. speaking to this idea of like, that wasn't, that wasn't okay. And that you've got like this new or evolving, let's say evolving relationship with like who you are authentically in regards to sport, body, food, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's very easy to brush things off when everything is going well. I mean, let's be honest. And yeah. it's very easy Super to rationalize easy. things, to be like, well, whatever, strange blood tests. Cool. It doesn't matter. I wouldn't be performing like I am if, if you know, if that was actually a problem. Yeah. Um, and so 
I think it's one of those things that for each person, because I've talked to a lot of, a lot of, I'll say women because the people, but the vast majority have been women who have reached out, who have said, like, I am thinking about treatment, but I don't actually, how do I know it's bad enough? Or like, how do I know, like how, or is this all in my head? Or is it just like, because I remember personally, I had a uh, uh, ex-boyfriend who, when I actually got up the nerve to tell him what I was going through, he was, he, his response was, oh yeah, you and every other woman. And so I initially just thought like, okay, well, I guess I don't have a problem because every other person is like this. So for me, it's understanding that when your brain space is taken up so much by something that it's shutting out all the other joy in your life, like that is a problem. And I think that that is, that threshold is different for everyone, but like you will reach a point where it's more painful to not do anything than to like stay in your same pattern, you know? Yeah. It's like so. a fixation pattern, right? Where it's like not even necessarily yeah. about food at a certain point. It's just this like fixation with the process. Right. And then also realizing that you're not able to show up in life, how you want to show up. Like for me, I couldn't go out to dinner with other athletes the night before the race because I couldn't let people see me eat or I couldn't, I couldn't and in social relationship around food. And you just think about all these things and it starts to add up and you're like, I, it is exhausting to live this way. Exhausting. And maybe there's something better. I don't know if there is, but let's give it a try. So. Yeah, that's, that's pretty huge. And I, I think that you alluded to this in the article. We've talked to Caitlin and, and Heidi about this as well. And I think, you know, we, we understand that there is, and I think um, Keely and I had both kind of experienced this in different phases of our own athletic careers too, that there's, there are consequences for having long periods of time where we're undernourishing our bodies. And there's, there's these lasting consequences. And I know with your injury cycle, there have probably been moments and Heidi actually talked to this um, in her interview as well, is that like, you're like, I am taking care of myself. I am doing everything right. Like, why does my body keep failing me? And I'm just like wondering, you know, how, how has it been coming to kind of terms with this like slow and steady process of regaining some of that like body confidence and by body confidence, Mm -hmm. I mean, like trusting yourself that you will likely not break, um, as you've kind of progressed, I feel like with this in the last like three or four years. Uh, yeah. So I think it's a, it's, it's a process. It's a journey to understanding and to trusting your body again, especially after you've been eating it for so long. Like you don't want to see the number of MRIs that I had done in like the first year after I left treatment, because I was afraid that every ache and pain was another stress fracture because that's what I was used to. I, that's what I knew. I was terrified every single run that I went out. And it's also frustrating because it's not linear, kind of like Heidi said, is that I did actually get a stress fracture left treatment. And I and I throwing my hands up in the air, air, being like, I'm doing everything right. But what I you what we all need to remember is that first of all, the body takes a while to come on board. And second of all, you can get injured outside of 
there are other reasons for injury outside of like undernourishing and stuff like that. Sometimes we do everything right and shit still happens. And so it's been this process for me and it's been a lot of start and stops and it's, and um, it's, I feel like finally only in this past year where I've started to really be able to like get into a groove and, and trust and to work through issues that pop up because I still have niggles. I still have things that pop up, but just knowing that I'm not going to jump to, I have just broken myself every single time. Um, and that's hard. I think psychologically it's the hardest thing. I used to use MRIs as reassurance. I needed that reassurance that I wasn't. <laughs> and you almost become a dependent on that in a way. So. Yeah. 100, 100%. And kind of, I think speaking to things being like in a good groove for the past year, we've already alluded to this, but you're going to be lining up at Cascade Crest, like I think 72 hours after this podcast comes out. Um, oh yeah, that's how close Woo! it is. Yes. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, like getting on the start line for a hundred that you're yeah. excited about. I know that you ran Bighorn last year. Like how has your relationship evolved? when it comes to racing, you've had a really long career in sport in general. So just like, what is that, what is that evolvement of that relationship look like as far as like identity, self-worth, performance, enjoyment, et cetera? Yeah. So enjoyment has gone through the roof. I can tell you that, uh, which is an amazing thing. I think just comes with time and wisdom and age and, and also just feeling for me, Especially hundred milers, I don't get nervous hundreds because it's not, I don't feel like I'm racing other people around me. I feel like it's always like me in the course on a journey. And that's what I really love because what I try and bring to every single race is the fact that I get to be out there. And there have been many, many times when I haven't gotten to be out there and, um, you know, like, look, like, I think I still, I'm always going to have a competitive streak in me. I'm, I'm going to want to do well, but I also think more importantly is that I want to be present for those races because I look back on my obstacle racing career. And my biggest regret is that while I was winning all those races, I was miserable because I couldn't actually, the only thing I was focused on was whether or not I was going to cross the finish line at first like not whether I was actually enjoying myself in the process. And so I think that's been the biggest thing for me coming around to racing. Also, you know, just like the getting older part, it's kind of humbling in terms of, in terms of, in terms of racing. <laughs> so it's like, I turned 40 in two months and I'm like, okay, well, good thing is forties is when, is when ultra runner, female ultra runners seem to hit their stride, <laughs> but it's also one of those things that you're like, well, all right. I don't know where I am in this journey, but I'm just happy I'm out there. So heck yeah. I love that so, so much. And I'm really excited to give you a big old hug um, yes. next week, but I guess kind of one thing that I like to ask everyone, and, and this might be one of our last questions until Keely tells us that she's got more questions, but is that, um, just like reflecting on you know, kind of what you know now versus what you wish you knew when you came into trail and ultra running? Like, what is, what is that thing that if you could go back and tell that 2016 or 2015 Amelia that you now have like really come to terms with or have taken to heart? I would say the coolest thing about 
trail and ultra running and maybe more like the ultra side of it, but is that you can be involved in the sport in so many ways without being out there yourself racing. Um, and so I wish that like get, digging yourself into the community, be it volunteering, be it pacing, being crewing is just an amazing thing. And like the way that you can really derive joy, even if you can't be participating also something that, and this isn't particular to trail and ultra running, but particular to when I first in general, my relationship with athletics is that I don't need to fear my competitors. Like I, I used to feel like I couldn't be friends with people I was racing against or that it was just like weird, but ultra running actually really showed me that you can absolutely root your ass off for the people that you are in a race with. And then also still like, want to beat them, but then also like, but then still be friends and everybody loves each other to me that never computed that you could actually do that. And I think ultra running actually really showed me that. And now it's like, I'm everybody's biggest fan. And I think that is the best way to approach the sport. I love it so much. That's so, so cool. And I think that we like all feel that in a big, a big way, like having just all been at Western States recently, like it is kind of a big, it's a very competitive, like love fest, which is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Totally. So a lot of people, a lot of women I coach have told me that while they know eating disorders and disordered eating are really bad for their performance, that it's really hard for them to actually live by that motto because they see a lot of people who maybe go through eating disorders and have success and then come out with the eating disorder after. And so how would you kind of like reflect on this and maybe like craft a narrative around that in like support or against it, obviously, because I can totally see where they're coming from, especially if you're in that weird mindset where you're like, yeah, I know it's bad, but I've seen these people who have them and have success with them. So therefore I'm not willing to fully accept the narrative that they're bad because I also want to have that success. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's the hard part. That's the tricky part. And I think that, yeah, I, I had a lot of success. And you just kind of have to own that, but then realize at some point it will catch up to you and come crashing down. Um, And do you want to take that risk? And then I also now think a lot more in terms of longevity and what I've potentially done to my body through all those years. And I know, I think like we've, we, yeah, we talked about this um, in terms of, um, uh, the link between lack of estrogen and Alzheimer's and me thinking that the fact that I spent however many years without a period and wondering what did I do to myself potentially in 20, 30 years in terms of my brain. And, you know, I have, I have an aunt who has Alzheimer's now who had a lifelong eating disorder. And so you just start to think about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I would say, look, it, it's, it is very real that people can have success with eating disorders. It will likely catch up to them. It's just a matter of when and how, and do you want to risk that? And you can't convince somebody otherwise. Um, I think it's all a process that people have to go through in their own time. But to me now, I wish I had been more more respectful of all of the risks, especially the long-term damage. And, um, 
you know, but it's, it's easy to dismiss that in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. We've shared yeah, some I, very panicky DMS about estrogen. Yeah. I think I also yeah. love to put my science hat <laughs> on and be like, honestly, we also don't know how good you could have been with a period. That is also true. I so, think there's this part of me that's has wondered, could I have performed better if I actually had fed myself appropriately this entire time? So, yeah, stronger, and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's it. That's it. I, I like that feeling. I like that flipping on the head. So. <laughs> it's just an exciting, I think it's a really, I like that thought a lot because it feeds my science brain. And also it's kind of pertinent for the time, because I think there's a lot of studies that are aiming to actually start to better understand this right now anyways. And so hopefully we'll mm-hmm. know more in the future and can have that kind of data to show people also. Yeah. yeah show absolutely. them the science, Be, show them, show them the hard, the hard facts. I think it's Fear mongering is easy showing like someone Mm -hmm. like, Hey, like you will, you can be better. You would be better if you do X, Y, and Z thing like eating. So, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for all your time. I can't wait to see you next week. So excited. Well, I think that interview was well worth the wait. We made it to episode 52 and finally made it happen. Amelia's a dream friend, a dream person. She's got a lot of wisdom via a lot of personal life experience and her vulnerability and willing to share about it, I think makes her a world-class athlete and a world-class human. And I can't wait to give her a big old hug at the start line and then at the finish line of Cascade Crest in just a little bit. Yeah. And her finger will be intact. Yes. Finger intact. That is the goal. (laughs) Um, Before we let y'all go, we got to do a little bit of society slamming. Keely, you've been monitoring our DMs over the Trail Society Instagram page. What do you have for us this week? I have one for us. Okay. This is a question. I love these questions. I feel like we should always do a question. Um, So we have a fan who is saying that they love running trails and they started just running ultras. And they've been working with a coach since last August and hoping to get some advice from us around signs to know when coaching isn't working. They've been feeling pretty discouraged lately after coming off a period of severely low iron and a very busy period of work. And they feel like training isn't enjoyable anymore. Is it time to get a new coach and go back to self-coaching or what do we think is going on here? Oof. I would say like to start off to like, have you talked to your coach about this? Like, have you been like, Hey, I am feeling low. I'm feeling like maybe you're not connecting with them in general. And that is like, Mm -hmm. that is fine. You can outgrow people. I've had to Mm -hmm. outgrow me, et cetera. Like that is normal. They shouldn't be offended by that. Mm -hmm. Like you should want to come to the table and just like have a debrief, have a talk about what's actually going on Mm -hmm. in your life. And maybe that's not the right fit for you right now. And that could mean a new coach that could mean just taking a break and taking a breather. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like both the health bucket and the life stress bucket have been very, very full recently. Mm-hmm. What are your kind of like initial vibes there? Yeah. My initial vibes with those two sentences at the end, basically talking about the low iron and the really high work stress have me a little bit concerned, or I guess like hesitant to jump to the coach being the problem right away mm-hmm. and really thinking more along the lines of taking some time to see how you're feeling And if you're really, really tired, it sounds like that's warranted. I would be really tired with those things going on too. You probably aren't going to love running right now. I know when I was severely, severely tired 
or severely, severely overtrained, there were days where I just didn't want to get out of bed because you're just so exhausted. And so maybe giving yourself a little bit of time to recover from those times of really high stress to see if the desire to run comes back when you have less stress going on. And it might take a couple of weeks or a month and then maybe reevaluating the relationship with the coach, because I think there's a lot of moving pieces going on right now. And it would be hard to say that it's for sure a coaching problem or a for sure an energy problem until you give yourself some time to make sure like they can kind of even themselves out. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I've, I like, I've had athletes ask like, or I've put athletes like on a month long break where it's like, Hey, like there's a spot on my roster for them, but they need to break. Maybe they're going on a family vacation. Maybe they just like need to take an exhale and like catch up on life a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's totally, that's a reasonable ask, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe have that conversation with the coach to just be like, Hey, I think I need a breather. I think I need to like focus on like n- not having running be the priority for a month and just like mm-hmm. see if what, what else can get put into, yeah. put into order for mm-hmm. you. And then like, be like, Hey, can I, can like, we, can we have a call in four weeks and like see kind of where I'm at there. And and then you'll know how to move forward. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And even just having that conversation with your coach, it might be that you like the structure and maybe having that conversation with your coach makes him them realize they were giving you a little too much in regards to, or in relation to what you were going through, you know, physiologically and with work. And so maybe that will be a good warning sign to them next time that they don't over overbook your schedule when you have all these other things going on. And maybe they'll back off for the month and give you like a little reset month. And I've done that with athletes too, where you both kind of acknowledge that you're not going to be training them that month. And maybe that means they pause, or maybe that just means you're giving them structure, but it's very chill structure. And there's yeah. not really hard workouts. There's not really long runs, it's maintenance. just chill maintenance structure. And you're just giving them time to recover. Yeah. Agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. Just like checking on the communication front check in on the, like, maybe you need a breather front and then go from there. But I don't think, yeah, I don't consider it jumping ship. Just like give yourself time to figure out kind of where you and running are. And then I think that will allow you to figure out if it's, if it's your life or if it's the coach or if it's the combination. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yeah. yeah. Send us questions. We like, we like the questions. They're really <laughs> fun. And then we'll just do a big Q and a um, episode at some point too, maybe later this summer as well. Um, the other shout out we had was actually in the free trail Slack. Um, which is really cool if you're part of the free trail pro community. There's like 800 plus people in the Slack channel. Um, but we have a trail society Slack in there, which is really cool. We oftentimes follow up there about episodes, about episode topics. And um, Justine Bello dropped us a line. We also had some, we had a number of people slide into our DMs over this as well, um, providing a bunch of really good information that we're actually going to dive into in a later episode is kind of like a a news deep dive piece on the front end of an episode in the coming weeks. So keep your eye out on that. And that has to do with um, really just how like the medical community, the medical structure in not just the US, but kind of really broadly um, doesn't take care of and like doesn't acknowledge black patients' pain, um, suffering, et cetera. Um, And so there's a lot of kind of devices don't work appropriately. There's a lot of things to dive into there. So we're going to dive into it on a future episode as a, as a more than society slam, because we think that that's really important. But from Justine Bellow too, um, she jumped into the Slack channel and said, Hey, a quick follow-up on the discussion about Tori Bowie and preeclampsia and black maternal health crisis in the U S right around the time of the episode aired, the FDA actually announced an approval for a new blood test for preeclampsia 
It doesn't combat the hurdle of getting women into the office for safe and continuous care throughout their pregnancy or, you know, educating medical providers to take care of these individuals. Um, but this is objectively a good development. It's on their radar because they've got a close friend on bed rest um, through two pregnancies because of preeclampsia um, and still remains on kind of treatment post post-pregnancy for it. And so, um, thanked us for shining some light on it. And then there's a um, PBS article that we can link about um, this new blood test for preeclampsia, which is pretty darn cool to see. Yeah. And as I've been looking through different medical programs, as I'm filling out my secondaries, there are, I always look into their women's health research field and there are some programs that I, I end up calling out in the secondaries that are actually focusing on some of these maternal health issues, not all of them, but some of them. And to me, like, that's really cool. And I hope that one day I'll be able to help contribute to some of this research. Yeah. So thank you for sliding into our DMs, um, our individual ones, and the one over at the Trail Society Instagram page. Please keep doing that, sending us questions or feedback, et cetera. Um, you can email us. I'm Corinne at freetrail.com, for example. Um, hit us up. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're feeling, et cetera. Um, Keely and I, and I think Hillary will all be over in Europe at some point in time in August slash September. So maybe we'll get to see some of your darling faces, um, out in the wild, um, in and around the UTMB events. So, uh, keep your fingers crossed and, uh, your flight itineraries closer and until next time, we'll see you on the trails. Bye.